Jesus said some really, really interesting things. Just Matthew eleven twenty. It says, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Oh, yeah, we've got it here. Um, and just to highlight for a moment, just to remember, repent is really change of mind. It's, it's a change in, if you like, change your opinion about something. So Jesus is expecting, just put this together, verse 20, Jesus is expecting where he does miracles the outcome is that people change their minds. Yeah. All right, so he's doing miracles, people are getting healed, amazing things are happened, happening, and that's awesome. But he's expecting the people that are in that environment have experienced those things to have undergone a transformation just because he showed up and did this in front of them. He displayed something, and it was, it was meant to perform something in their thinking and change their opinion. Yeah. And, and so he goes, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles were performed in you, had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, then you'd repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 22. But I tell you, it would be more bearable in Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon, Jesus' mission was just to Israel only. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities to the north. Um, so he's saying it's going to be better for the Gentiles than all you Jews who think you're the chosen people. It's tough stuff. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. If the miracles performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. Who knows what happened in Sodom? Three people? It was five, six, seven, eight. Fire came because of the sin. Jesus is saying, listen, if the stuff I'd done had happened in this terrible, probably the archetypal sin city in the Bible, it wouldn't have been destroyed. That's quite a staggering thing to say. He's saying that, lots of things in there, he's saying that actually miracles are the answer to sin-filled cities. But he's also saying, he hasn't, Jesus has a, an expectation about the miraculous that, that, that something we're, we're trying to get our heads around is expecting the experiences of the miraculous to actually change our opinions. Uh, and I think probably the primary opinion he was expecting to change was their opinion of God. And the reason I say that is their background, which is very understandable, their background was one where they believe that God made people blind, for instance. And, and so, you know when Jesus healed the blind man and, and he spat in the mud and then put it in his eye? Obviously the blind man can't see what he's doing until he gets it in his eye, but he can hear what's happening. Why would Jesus sudden? is this just a spontaneous father revelation, spit's going to work today, son? Well, well, maybe, but actually... What we don't realize is in their culture, because they believe God made people blind, they also believe that if you were blind, it was because there was sin in your life, and so blind beggars were regularly spat on by the people that walked past them. So you hear them sort of hocking back and spitting on them. Here, Jesus spits and heals the guy with the blind eyes. So he's kind of redeeming this man's whole experience as well as doing 
a miracle. Now, why am I saying it? Because Jesus is here, he's doing miracles, he's healing the blind, he's, he's healing the sick, and he's ex- they have an expectation or a view of God that he is believing should change because he's displaying God to them in a way they've not experienced previously. He's, he's, he's doing something to produce a change of mind. He's not just teaching them to produce a change of mind. And that's quite a foreign idea to us, isn't it? But, but if, in another way, when we see the miraculous, it, it, has, it has nutrients that are meant to feed our minds, our hearts, and our spirits to help us line up with God's real reality rather than sometimes the reality that we are currently living with. Is that, is that fair? Um, and then, I don't know about you, but I read some of these passages. I think, man, this, this sounds a bit unfair. You know, he's kind of slagging off a whole city. You know, the, there's going to be people in that place who, you know, maybe just are suffering. Do, do you know? Or they know someone who is, or they just buried someone who was, or. And then Jesus blows into town, does all this amazing stuff, and he's expecting them to change their mind. Are you with me? Yeah. And I want, to, I want to talk to us a little bit about um, this kind of tension that, that, we, that we live with uh, and how we keep believing for breakthrough when we, we're living in the middle of setbacks. Because Jesus is expecting, some, he's expecting us to behave towards what he's doing in a way that at times, I think we can struggle with, but that doesn't mean we don't have to wrestle with this issue. So, this church, we've been going after healing and seeing hundreds and hundreds of healings for more than seven years now. We have a rich storehouse of amazing testimonies that we just keep adding to, and I believe the Lord is encouraging us to keep pulling them up and sucking all the nutrients we can out of what he's doing and been doing. But we also find ourselves, as a leader, you, you, for a long time you experience these seasons. We find ourselves in the seasons of some real ch- health challenges and so actually some quite painful losses happening in the midst of a church. It's like, we believe God can raise the dead and we believe that the blind eyes can see. We believe we're going to see cancers healed and we're going after this stuff. And at the same time, people are having to walk through all kinds of challenges that don't seem to match up with what we're going for. And some of you are staring back at me because you've just been through it. Some of you are going through it. So how do we manage ourselves, our community, our expectations when this is the kind of reality, you know? And I just wanted to, to just to talk to you a little bit about some of my personal story and and our personal story uh, and then just give you, I think I've got eight points because I realized, as I tell the story, it may not be obvious what I'm saying. So I'm just want to draw out something conclusive at the end of it, rather than you go away. Oh, that was, yeah, that was sad, or that was good, or that was. I'm going to ask you permission, but I'm kind of going to do it anyway. I'm just getting you ready. Is that all right? Yeah, it just helps if you say yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm hoping it helps us all connect better to what Jesus is actually saying in this passage. So we'll try and land it back here. It's a bit like the BBC. They tell you what they're going to tell you, then they tell you, then they tell you what they told you. (laughs) 
So, somewhere in the late 80s, there's a lot behind this, but God did some stuff in me, and together with some leader friends, I was persuaded that we should run healing meetings in our church back then that, that, that we were leading. And we were seeing some pretty remarkable stuff just happening in our community. Uh, God was showing up. Crazy things were happening. The most craziest one I remember was the teenagers group all getting intoxicated in the spirit and slowly falling in a pile. And the pile got bigger and bigger in the meeting. And anybody then, teenager or not, who got close to it, immediately fell under the power of the Spirit and joined the pile. It was like a pile that forms on a goal scorer in a football match or something like that. You think whoever's on the bottom could suffocate apart from divine help. And, and all kinds of other stuff was going on. Some of it we had zero clue what it meant. or Just strange. And, and so we started these healing meetings. And uh, oh, that, was, that was actually quite scary to stand and preach the first time and go, we believe that God heals, and he's going to heal some of you. And they're all looking at you like, okay, let's see. Anyway, we saw some amazing things started to happen. Uh, the most amazing that I remember, I'm going to tell you, was you always, you always get in these meetings, there's always the wheelchair person. And usually the wheelchair person is parked at the front, right in your eye line as a preacher. It almost feels... From the leader point of view, it's like, if you can't do this one, you really lack integrity. <laughs> Does that make sense? So, yeah, this is a healing meeting. Fix this if you can. Type It, it can have that sort of feel. So, we have a meeting, and, and there's wheelchair person. Not only that, but they lift this dear lady out of her wheelchair and put her on the floor, and she sits supported on her knuckles, uh, so I, I do the best job I can of preaching the gospel, really, is what you're doing. And, and at the end, my habit was, like, I want some words of knowledge to know what to go after first. And inside me, I'm going, okay, Lord, you know, I'm looking at the back. <laughs> okay, Lord, give me a word of knowledge. And um, his word of knowledge is, deal with the thing in front of you. Look at my fellow leader, and we're like, we're supposed to go for this. And he says, okay, then. So we, we had a platform, not very high, but we had a little platform. We stepped off the platform and started to pray for this lady. We asked her why she wasn't in a wheelchair. She said she couldn't sit for that long in that position. And so she had to support herself with some very serious spinal problems, couldn't walk. So we started to pray. And this gets weirder before it gets better, so just, just hold on. Start to pray, and you can literally hear cracking noises from her back. And you put your hand on her back, you could feel her bones moving, and she is wincing in pain. And we're like, we're killing her. Do you, literally saying, do you want us to stop? Because this is obviously pretty uncomfortable. And she says, no. No, I'm, I'm believing God for today. I've took known painkillers today. This is my moment don't stop. So, we're like, <laughs> so, I mean, bone cracking is it's not fun. And you're like, you suddenly feel responsible and there's all this cracking and movement. Anyway, she only goes and stands up. 
she only goes and walks around the room several times and everybody's like, wow. Her husband who's with her is like, and then she realizes something else, which we hadn't prayed for, is that she could see her husband without her glasses on. And she get this is back in the 80s, so we didn't have these lightweight perspex or whatever, the glasses. These were, she had serious eyesight issues, and they were kind of heavy duty, you know. They were, were work out putting them on. We got them, and basically, as a, a knock-on effect, her eyesight got restored. <laughs> now we're feeling like we're you're really cool, we're smart, we were so wise to do this, and like... Anyway, word starts to get out when this happens, and we get, um, this is one of the challenges. We get this couple, unchurched unbelievers, bring their two-year-old daughter, who's got this massive growth, like bigger than my fist, in her neck. They've tried everything, and it's cancerous, it's killing her, and we, oh my, we cried out to God for that girl. Um. But she died, and we sent flowers, and it was that kind of, and I, was, I got phone calls from another, I got a phone call from another woman who was laid out on a, on a bed, a Christian lady with a couple of little kids, riddled with cancer all over her, her body. They, basically, the doctors had given up on her, and they just, not because they hadn't tried, just because they didn't know what else to do, and, and she was on one of these morphine pumps that just every few minutes she got another shot of morphine to keep the pain at bay and I remember going in there with her husband who said he wasn't a believer and me and a couple of others of our team prayed and the presence of God came in this room again I still this is years ago I still don't know understand this the non-Christian husband feels the presence of God and speaks in tongues I don't understand that I still don't understand that you don't understand it either, so just join my club. We don't understand. Anyway, she, she died. We sent flowers. And I was, this, this was a struggle. Honestly, this, this was difficult for me to deal with, to keep offering something that was attracting people, and we were not succeeding in every case. We had some great stories. I've given you one of them, and we had many others, but it you know, to stand there and, uh, is it possible to get compassion fatigue? I don't know. Any of you involved in praying for the sick, when it's a supernatural thing, you feel it. Honestly, you feel in your bones. You get this, it's what happened with Jesus, this compassion that moves through you. But actually, sometimes you get the compassion, you don't get the outcome. You also feel very vulnerable because you're like, we're going to go for this and you're, you know, when you step off the platform and it works, it look, you look really cool. When you're burying them, you feel like you're just a fraud. Is, is, this, is this making sense? So, <laughs> lots of effects on, on me and on our community, I guess, over time. So, the boldly jumping off the stage to pray for people in wheelchairs started to disappear. Um, hmm just didn't want to keep putting myself and others out there, putting yourself on the spot, raising hopes that you can't always seem to meet. Um, so, you kind of 
somewhere I needed to park that in my thinking. And uh, I think I parked it in, well, he's sovereign. I can't not believe in healing, but I just need to let him do it when he's doing it. So I became increasingly passive and less of a risk taker. Um, Then a few years later, probably six, seven years later, uh, still see the occasional healing, but I'm up a mountain with Pete Carter. Most of you know Pete Carter, long-term friend of mine. This is probably now about 1997. And we've been working with a little church plant on the side of a mountain. Um, There's about 12 people. It's part of a tribe, actually, that never married with the Spaniards when they invaded all those years ago. And uh, there's 15,000 people in this tribe. There's this little church plant with this young couple and they've gathered 12 downtrodden poor people who don't have running water, don't have, some have electricity, they live in stick huts. And Pete is also a GP, so he's got, got a bag of the best load of stuff we could get in with us. And we went up to encourage this couple and help this church plant and, and do a clinic. And we get invited to go around houses, so we're doing like house calls, knocking on stick hut doors. And we come to this door and they, they ask Pete in as this youth lying on a stick bed and he's paralyzed his legs and arms don't work Pete had a big fancy name for what was wrong with him uh, but basically there was nothing in his medical bag that could do anything for this guy so Pete there was me and another leader and Pete turns to us and says uh, I think we should pray shall we pray the other guy says I don't think we should get his hopes up. I understood that because remember where I was? I was like, I believe in healing. I've seen amazing miracles. What what happens if he's disappointed? And and at that moment, I had a decision to make. I think I made the right decision. I said, yeah, Pete, let's pray. So we prayed on this guy and he only gets up and walks out the hut. I mean, it, it, it was just like, Whoa. And then later in the day, we ran a cl- another clinic that people came to. And there's this queue of people, because you know, they don't have doctors up. It took hours to drive up to this mountain. And it, they're queuing for help. And, and this woman brings her baby in. And, and she, the baby's looking really sick. And, and Pete looks at her. And we, we don't know what's going on. But basically, the water, all the water they drank had amoeba in so the, the death rate for children was very high because lots of them died of amoebic dysentery, which they had no pills for. So this baby was re- really on the edge. And as he was examining her, it, the baby passed away, breathed its last. And Pete again looks at it and says, because he could tell. He, I mean, when the baby came in, she was so ill, it was hard. Do you know, there wasn't a lot of life, so the difference between alive and dead for the untrained eye sometimes isn't that easy to see but no she's gone she's passed there's nothing I can do for her shall we pray I was like well the guy got out of his bed let's pray so we we prayed and the baby came back to life I'm really glad that my disappointment from before 
I had, op- I had choices to make. I could have sided with the other idea, which made sense. Made sense emotionally to me. Um, the outcome of these miracles was that that church grew and grew and grew. That, the last I heard now, years ago, that girl was 12 years old. The, 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 the people changed. Their heads were down and their heads came up. There is now a church of 300 people amongst a tribe of 15,000. And it was a spark for a... Com- we, we actually affected a whole people group through... I'm so glad that it didn't kind of stop because I was cheesed off with God or I was so married to sovereignty that I couldn't take a risk. And so, fast forward a little bit. You would think that would sort you out, wouldn't you? You kind of, ah, here we go. And I was still going after healing, but I don't think internally I was completely sorted out on this. Um, And then I've told you some of these stories before, but I just want to put it together. Our, we were about to buy a house here. We were moving here to plant the church. And as we were about to offer on a house, I got a phone call. We were at Loch Lomond from our son who was 19. Anyway, it turned out he was rushed into hospital. We, we got told that he had a 50-50 chance of living. He had 40 tumors in his chest. And... Uh, I, at that point, was leading a team based in Newcastle that was overseeing about eight, nine churches in the northeast of England, and I wanted to get the team and leaders to pray. I'm actually in our bedroom with the phone about to ring one of my friends on the team to say, would you pray? And the phone rings, and it's him ringing me saying he's just followed the ambulance to Leeds Royal Infirmary with his 13-year-old son who's diagnosed with terminal brain tumor Uh, I couldn't tell him what was happening but suddenly this team was hit with two two of our offspring were in a battle for their lives Um, and we went down and we prayed and we watched this guy it was increasingly incapacitating his son and we watched him lift his son out of his bed and take him to the toilet we stood with them at the funeral, you know, we stood with them after the funeral, and then the whole of our church in Newcastle had prayed for breakthrough, and we had to tell them something, and we sat together as elders, and we said, what are we going to say? And, and basically, we, we came up, and we said, you know what? Uh, God's in control of death. He took him. I was the longer I thought about it, the more unhappy I was with that answer. But that was the answer we gave our whole community. Because really what we said, the more I thought about it, is God kills 13-year-old boys. Um, but there's a comfort in resting these things in sovereignty. So these experiences didn't exactly move me out of my place that I described to you. And then Nick and I went to Bethel 
nearly eight, eight years in September. I mean. And I got hold, I think it was through your dad, Nick, I got hold of uh, Bill Johnson's healing series. And in that, Bill, the week his father dies of cancer, is preaching a message on healing. And Bill stands up and he's, he's crying, he's emotional, he's just buried his father who died of cancer, and he basically, in this message, says, although this is painful, although this is difficult, I refuse to believe that this is God. My God, he is good. He does not kill people with cancer. And although this is in my family, although this is touching my life deeply and emotionally, I believe that by his stripes we are healed and we are going to keep going after this even though, even when we get past this funeral. And, and we went to that environment, we went to Bethel and, and that somehow is in their DNA now. And actually, sometime after, they saw people healed of the thing that killed Bill's dad. So I'm, not, I'm standing here telling this because I'm not pretending that this is easy. And emotionally and mentally, we all want to, when we face the setbacks and the losses, we all want to park it somewhere that makes us feel better. And what the church has done for centuries, actually, is park it in, well, it's just God who's sovereign. The problem with that is you end up with a God who kills babies. I don't believe that. I don't believe that anymore. It took me a while to realize that what I believed meant that's what I believed. Do you know the consequence of following the thought through suddenly started to strike me? And, <laughs> you know, I'm so glad that that kind of thing didn't stop us praying for the dead baby and the, the paralyzed boy up the mountain, that we kept offering hope. And I just want to try and pull this story it is emotional because inside you're like this hurts your kids are sick friends of your friends of your kids die it's painful you want to know you want to comfort them and you want comfort actually it's a good time to say not very much I don't have time to do it now. I think one time I'm going to do a preach on the questions God doesn't answer. There's several instances through the Bible where people in some deal of conflict or difficulty ask the big questions that we ask and God completely ignores them. If you look, the, the, the classic would be in Judges 6. <clears throat> and so... There has to be a reason for that in him. Still in the room. I mean, mentally, we, we okay. I don't want to be someone who believes God 
is bad. I'd love it to be at the day where my insurance policy doesn't say a flood that disabled our lovely new Mini and cost 7,000 quid for a new engine was an act of God. That's what it said on the insurance policy. I don't want to believe that. I don't want that to be the faith of this community. You see, Jesus came doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. All right? He came giving a perspective about the goodness of God that didn't allow for God giving people cancer and killing children. Okay. <laughs> We're doing good. Here's, here's what I learned, I think. God is looking for us to do this. He's looking for us to believe about who he is from the miracles that he does. Not form our opinion about who he is from what has not happened. That's the, that's the fundamental expectation of Jesus for all these cities that he has a problem with here. He's there forming their opinion of, of the Father from what hasn't happened rather than from what has happened. So I want to keep lifting up the testimony because that's what he is doing, that's what he has done, and I think we've got some great testimonies that we need to keep telling because I'm not sure we've got all the nutrients out of them yet. Um, it's exciting and wonderful when God moves. And he's showing us what he's really like because we have to remember that, that, that we, are, we are in a battle. Christian life isn't like a battle, it is one. We do have an enemy. So the, the second thing I learned is that John 10.10 10 is true. John 10.10 10 says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus' theology is very simple. Bad things come from the devil, good things come from God. But it was in a community whose theology was less clear than that. And the theology of the church has been less clear than that. But actually, as more and more miracles happen, it challenges our very thinking about the nature of God. I believe that it's the devil that steals, that kills, and destroys. The devil didn't give my son cancer. The, dev Sorry, the devil gave my son cancer. God didn't give it. The devil took this son, a 13-year-old. God didn't take him. I mean, Jesus had a habit of disrupting funerals. So you can't just say, well, everybody who dies, it must have been the will of God. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have raised them back from the dead. Well, you can just see them around Lazarus' tomb. Well, it must have just been his time. But Jesus had a different opinion. Or, or the girl in, who was in the coffin, the, the young girl who died, and he touches the coffin and she gets up. He just said, well, she was only asleep and like, we were just about to bury her. So it's not universally true that everybody who dies, dies in the timing of God, even. So what we as elders told our church back then was not entirely the whole picture. So, 
The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. If it looks like stealing, if it looks like killing, if it looks like destroying, it isn't from heaven. And that's a really important place to stand when there's some stealing, killing and destroying happening in your life or around your life. And to those that are dear to you and precious to you, this is where the fight is. It's inside you because it looks ugly, but you know he isn't ugly. And you cannot allow the ugliness of what's around you to shape the belief inside of you. The third thing I learned is worship when it hurts. Worship because it hurts. Don't internalize your grief, pain, questions and shut down until it eventually settles down inside of you. Find a room, find a woodside Find, find a space where you can stand and no matter how you're feeling, you lift your voice and you shout at the top of your voice and you declare the goodness and the greatness of God even if everything inside you is not feeling that good that day. That's what you do. Because we are aligning ourselves with himself. We're not trying to persuade him to feel like us. It's... The second point, well, point four is, is a bit like it, which is actually believing can sometimes feel painful. But it's better to believe than to lose hope. I sometimes wonder, the, the Bible's so funny in what it gives you and what it doesn't give you. You know, it lifts up Abraham as this great hero of faith. The father of all faith, the father of the faithful is one phrase that Romans uses here we are. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Abraham. He is our father in terms of faith. But somehow this guy with his barren wife walked for more than 20 years with a promise that he would have a baby. What's that going to be like when every, you know, the month comes around and you're there with your wife and once again it doesn't happen? Once again, no joy. Once again, over and over and over. And then, and then she reaches the age where that cycle even isn't happening in her body anymore. And you're looking at one another as an old couple going, we have a promise and we have no kids. Yeah. It doesn't tell you what they did. It doesn't tell you how they felt. It just tells you that Abraham believed God. It does tell you that he weakened and had a baby through one of his servants. But then it tells you that he never wavered in unbelief. But we don't know how he felt. We just know he never gave up. He just kept believing. Even when he dropped the ball, so to speak, and had an Ishmael, he returned to unbelieving. And then one day, against all hope, Isaac is born. Old guy, old woman. Barren anyway, and she had a double thing. She'd been barren, and now she was past childbearing age, and she has a baby. God can take anything and anybody and make you fruitful from any position you're in. So, <laughs> oh gosh, keep, keep going, keep going. It's going to give me a couple of minutes to get this landed. Please don't put the kids' sign up just yet. We've got a few minutes to go. Um, 
Worship when it hurts, don't stay inside yourself. I think I've learned that you keep taking risks and touch, trust him for the outcome. What would have happened if we hadn't prayed for that crippled boy and that dead baby? What would have happened? How many, how many hundreds of people would not be in heaven now if we hadn't, if we'd bottled it in that moment, which for our own emotion, my own emotions would have been easier to protect myself from the potential this doesn't work and I'm looking like a fool and I've come all the way from England to pray for you up this mountain and it was a weak, feeble, useless prayer that did nothing. If I'd let that persuade me, probably 300 people would be in hell, not heaven today. I've got to trust him for the outcome. He is the comforter. He is the comforter. Sometimes we forget that and feel like we have to do all the comforting. No, he is the comforter. He gave us Holy Spirit as the comforter. Ask him, number five or whatever we're on, ask him to help you stay compassionate and not protect yourself through hardness of heart. You have to keep asking him. This is hard when it doesn't work. It's glorious when it does. All your instincts, I've said this already, but all your instincts and emotions can be pushing you away from faith. It's important to make the sacrifice of praise at that point and hold on to promise. I believe that faith is what changes nations. Because it says of Abraham, in hope, against hope, he believed. So everything was stacking up to say no, but in his heart there was still a yes. Number whatever. Don't create answers he's not giving to help you cope or them cope. This is an answer, and it may not be right, but this is what I have. Why doesn't he answer with the why... Like Gideon, what happened to all your miracles? He doesn't answer the question. Why are we in this mess? Why didn't you do all these miracles? God doesn't say it. He doesn't answer the question. So I'm like, God, why are you not answering these legitimate questions that we have? These people are dying and you're not telling us why. The wisdom I have on it is he wants to give no acknowledgement to what the devil does. He's constantly telling Gideon what he's about to do. Are you you understanding? God's interested in giving glory to God, not acknowledging what... He's not seeing it, if you like. That's... Take that for what it is. Every loss and setback we experience, he can turn to amazing good... But that doesn't mean that that was the purpose of the thing in the first place. Let's say that again. Every last setback we experience, God can turn it to good. But that doesn't mean, that then doesn't, you don't read backwards then to say, oh, well, God always intended it to go belly up because he was going to do this out of it. No, that's going back to where we were before. It's saying he's the prime cause of the bad thing. I don't believe that. 
But when a bad thing happens and we don't get breakthrough, God can make it a good thing. He can turn it around. He can make it amazing. He can do incredible, incredible things. And the final thing is, he's preparing us to handle bigger breakthroughs than we've ever experienced. When, when I, we got back as a team from Maastricht a few years ago, I remember the guy Wheels who got out of a wheelchair, he had nerve, nerves restored, he couldn't walk, his cancer got healed, prostate cancer. I was getting phone calls from people not in this church saying, we hear you've had a breakthrough with cancer, would you pray for X in the hospital? I went in the hospital and prayed, had other people. That's just with one thing that happened hundreds and hundreds of miles away. What happened to me all those years ago with people coming into our healing There's such a huge hunger out there. As we get breakthrough, he's preparing us to manage ourselves and do this well. Because I believe that we're going to see multiple cancers healed. I believe it's going to bow the knee to the name of Jesus in this room or in whatever room we're in, in this church, through this church, in this city, we get known to be in a cancer-free place. Wouldn't that be awesome? He's able to do it if we don't give up and we don't lose heart. But we have to handle the outcomes because you get known for being, having breakthrough at that level. The, the pull is, is quite considerable and we need to be so strong because it's all the glory goes to him. All the glory goes to him. And, and we get to look amazing in the process. He shares it with us. But our internal posture has to remain pointed to him getting the glory. So let's stand together. I'm going to wrap this up. <clears throat> Thank you so much for staying mentally, emotionally in the room. Physically in the room. So, Father, we, we just want to declare together that you're good. You're the source of all good things, and in you there is no darkness at all. There's no shadow of turning. You're not the author of anything that's stealing, killing, and destroying. And we want to recommit our hearts <coughs> uh, to that belief. And we want to be courageous and risk-takers to spread the truth that Jesus rose again from the dead. He has authority over sin, sickness, cancer, the devil. And you sent us as your envoys to make that a reality on the earth. Amen. So folks, can we just recommit our hearts to that, whatever we've faced or facing, that we believe is good. Yes. We believe he's the author of good things. And that's what we're going to pray. And that's what we're going to believe. And that's what we're going to distribute in this place.